So he was an Iraqi soldier laying in a hospital bed at Air Base Balad in Iraq, and I visited him a couple of times, but he was never aware of my presence or the presence of anyone else. He had recently attended a, a wedding celebration with other soldiers, and a part of their celebration was they would shoot their rifles up into the air, and one bullet found its way back down into his head, permanently damaging his brain. And I tell that disturbing story to make an important point. What matters the most is what's true, not what we want, hope, or demand to be true. And what's true is there are laws of gravity and physics and human anatomy that are not impacted by human desires or demands, but by the facts. And so if you shoot a bullet up, it's going to come down. And it could have devastating consequences. And gravity didn't care that that soldier had good intentions, wasn't trying to create harm. And so, so far, most people would not dispute me. They would say, yeah, I'm tracking. On the next point, many people would disagree. The same absolute nature of facts is as true in the realm of religion, faith, human beliefs, and behaviors as in, is, is true in physics and anatomy. Back in May, we were in the book of 2 Timothy, and Paul challenged his protege to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. And Paul was casting vision for Timothy to be what I call then a blue-collar truth worker, to buckle down and know and teach and do what is true, because you can and you must know and handle the truth correctly. Jim Lewis enlisted Trevor Seitz to design some hats with that saying on it. Maybe you've seen some guys sporting this. But there's just something good about the desire to work hard at the truth. And truth must be handled correctly, but it can be mishandled. And so I'm standing underneath, well now I'm standing underneath some steel beams that are holding up wall and a roof. And if Neil, my son-in-law, who designed that steel beam, got his math wrong, it would be bad. And um, he had a lot of stake because he would... He would um, get fired and kill his father-in-law all in one stroke. <laughs> and if the steel workers who put up the beam got the truth, the steel beam installation wrong, it would be bad. And Neil didn't seek his truth on steel beams. He calculated the truth. And the workers who installed the beam, when I walked in here, this, this was demolished and they had put up all these supports and they were um, working hard at it was dark in here, cold in here. I never walked in, and there's all these blue-collar steel workers sitting around going, how do you feel about gravity today? I just never saw that. They were looking at the specs, and they were installing the beams according to the truth of steel beams and brick walls. We've looked at Deuteronomy 29, 29 a lot, especially over the Advent season. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children that we will obey him. And so we're looking this month at the history and mystery of the Incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And to say that we must handle the truth correctly is not to say that we can have exhaustive knowledge of truth. One of the things problems humans get into is they say, if I can't know all truth, then I can't know any truth. And that's just a false dichotomy. Exhaustive truth is not necessary to live in the truth. We have adequate enough truth and we have accurate true truth of God. So Neil and the steel workers, they don't know everything there is to know about steel and gravity. They know enough to build a safe wall. And what God's revealed to us is enough to be saved and to be sanctified, to, to train over time to become more like Christ. 
And so we can't divide the world into true truth, steel truth, like holds up beams, and then my truth, we'll call it mushy truth. Steel truth is important, we think, for actual steel beams and buildings. Mushy truth is kind of what I want to be true or stuff I want to believe. So my truth, mushy truth, doesn't apply broadly to everyone everywhere all the time. It's just mine. It's mushy. And when it comes to their lives, what they believe, what they value, and certain behaviors, many people believe that there is no such thing as steel truth. They believe you can tinker with reality in that realm. They would never, they would never want Neil to have his truth in steel beams, but they think they can have their truth when it comes to their own lives. And this delusion persists partly because the consequences of living outside reality in the world of steel beams and brick walls can be rather immediate. You get the math wrong, the wall falls. In the realm of personal beliefs, shaping values, shaping certain behaviors, those consequences may not be immediate. In fact, they might unfold over an entire lifetime and even beyond this life. So I was reading this week about the criminal Whitey Bulger, who was at one time the FBI's second most wanted. The first most wanted was Osama bin Laden. And Bulger, was a, he was a terrible, murderous human being, and he went for decades, it seems, getting away with it, the wall not falling down on him. But it came down in horrific fashion when he was, the murderer was murdered in prison. And if, and if the actual wall comes down, like if, if, if this wall came down, the impact is immediate. Wow, that didn't work. We got steel beam truth wrong. But when we live outside of God's will, if we live our own truth, sometimes the consequences are so slow that people fail to connect cause and effect. Nothing bad's happening. I feel okay so far. No walls falling on me. I guess it doesn't matter. And I want to go back, before we go to Luke, I want to go back to Psalm 73, a, a chapter in Psalms we've looked at several times, but it's really important in thinking about truth. It's an example of a guy who's trying to make sense out of what he was, thought he was seeing in the world in regard to God's truth and others who weren't living God's truth. He thought they were getting away with it. He said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. You would almost think he was on social media. Their lives are perfect, unlike mine. And along those lines, I saw a documentary recently about the rise of anxiety in society and one mental health expert said that if you're on social media, you're going to have more anxiety. And she wasn't even saying you shouldn't be on it. She was just saying, if you are, you're going to increase your anxiety. And for two reasons. First, you're being exposed to too much bad news, more than we're designed to handle. And second, you're getting imaginary views of the lives of others that you compare to, the, to your own actual life. And the psalmist, he knows, I'm sure if you talk to him, he knows people struggle. But in his, in his confused state of mind, it didn't seem like they were. They're burden-free, they're full of pride, they're getting away with it. They're not, they're, they're not putting steel beams up, and yet the wall's not falling on them. Why am I going to all this effort to put up steel beams? They have their own truth, and it's working for them. They even mock God. Like, where's God? Nothing's happening here. And he struggles deeply with this. He said, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. And when I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me. And as I was reading this chapter, I was thinking about our students, middle school, high school, college students. And I, I imagine some of you, maybe all of you at times, feel this way. Your friends, people you see in the classroom, people you see on social media, they're having sex with whoever they want, they're having fun, they're living their own truth, they're denying that God has truth, 
They're not struggling like I know many of you are working hard to stay pure, to follow God. And, but yet they're fine. They're more than fine. They're, sometimes it feels like they're doing better than you are. And so you're thinking, what gives? Well, that's what this guy was saying. And there's more going on and there's more about to go on in their lives than what's readily apparent to you. And so our, conf- our confused psalmist went to church like you did <laughs> this morning. And he turned his mind towards the steel truth of God. And suddenly he saw that the mushy truth of those around him was not true and that the brick wall was coming down. It's just coming down in super slow motion. And so when it does fall, the consequences can be sudden and devastating. So he said, I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood their final destiny. You place him on slippery ground. You cast him down to ruin. And so it was clear to him now, I lost my mind for a minute, but now I'm back in reality. The truth is, He goes on to write, you're always with me. You hold me by my right hand now. You guide me in life. And then after this life is over, you'll take me to glory. What was I thinking? Who am I I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Something else is important to remember as we read between the lines of this psalm is the psalmist only thought that those around him were carefree. He's only seeing their outsides. They were not doing as well as it looked like they were from his perspective. And neither are the people around you or the people online. They're not doing as well as it looks. And we often hear these stories after the fact. And if you dig into their lives, you get to know them personally. People sometimes sit down and talk to me, and they have great curb appeal. And then when they sit down and you open the door and walk into their lives, you're thinking, man, this is not a good place. So many of you have followed Christ for years. You've become used to peace. You don't, you're so used to it, you don't even know you have it. You're used to true friends. You're used to perspective-shaping worship. You're used to walking with God in your everyday life. You're used to God's peace and truth in your life, and so you don't realize that others around you have not had a minute of what you've enjoyed for years. It's become common for you. Last week, I went to the hospital because... Robert Garner called and said that Ernest might die soon. So Christy told me I need to say this. He's not dead. Okay, so then I'll tell the rest of the story because I forgot to say that in the first. Everybody's thinking. (laughs) So let me tell the rest of the story. He's not dead. Unless he died between this morning and now, but as as far as I know, he's not dead. So I got a call about 10 o'clock, and Robert Garner said, come to the hospital. Um, Ernest might die soon. He suffered massive blood loss from an internal bleed. They couldn't locate. When I arrived, he was shaking and groaning, Um, His body was, it was not well with his body, but it was well with his soul. And I stood behind him, held his head, and prayed in his ear. And as his body began to recover, he was able to speak. He started telling me what to say to various people after he was gone. And um, it was, tell this person I love him, tell this person I love him. And and he was started telling me about his funeral service. and, And it looked like he was imminent. And he wanted me to put his ashes around that oak tree out front. And I'm like, okay, I'll put your ashes. Actually, I'm going to do whatever I want when you're actually dead. (laughs) And then he would occasionally say something, and I would lean in and say, what would you say? Then he would repeat himself because it was hard. He was low on energy. One time he spoke, and I said, what would you say? And he said, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to Jesus. I said, okay, well, this is a three-way conversation. How do I know who you're talking to? And that went on and on. And then finally, he said, if this is the valley of the shadow of death, it isn't that bad. And I said, well, that's because you have a shepherd. So if you've been a believer for a while, you become accustomed to the Lord's peace. And Ernest didn't say the the shadow of the valley of death is not that bad. 
in a coffee shop. He said it when it looked like he was imminent. And by that, I don't mean you're never worried or anxious or that you're always going to feel good or that your physical body doesn't cause you pains and problems, but you have a peace with God that's with you, and this peace is not your peace. It is the steel truth of God. And so we have to be grateful for that truth, but we can't be cocky about it. And that's what people are confused about. We say we have the peace of God, and then we are arrogant in the way that we communicate it and demonstrate it and celebrate it. We would have no truth of God. We would have no peace of God if God had not given it to us. We can learn the truth about the world God has made through observation and experimentation, but we can't learn the truth about why he made the world or what's wrong with it or the solution for it or what happens when we die, how do you not reveal it? And when we consider that God has given us the truth, we didn't earn it, we didn't find it, our response should be humility and gratitude and compassion for people who are trying to live under brick walls without steel beams. So we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke and I want you to pay attention to how he seamlessly writes about history and mystery at the same time. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. There were many people who were writing about Jesus at this time. His life had gone viral. And God has seen fit to give us four inspired, accurate accountings out of the many that were written, and Luke's is one of them. And so notice he writes not of the things that happened, but of the things that were fulfilled. This is not bare history. This is not brute news. This is the news of the revelation of God in history. What has happened is a fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. All of history is under God's sovereign control, and in the coming of Christ, God showed up in history. And Luke was interested in writing down God's actions in human history and the gospel. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and as he walked the, the Roman roads and sailed the Mediterranean, he had a lot of time to pick the brains of Paul and Peter and other eyewitnesses. I imagine he probably interviewed Mary and Martha. He talked to formerly demon-possessed people. He talked to people who had been paralyzed, who weren't. He talked to people who had seen Jesus crucified, saw him dead, saw him alive, raised from the dead. And he continued to see the power of the gospel around him. This was not mere past history. It was God's kingdom come because he lived it. He went on to write a companion volume to Luke we call the book of Acts. So in Acts 1, he said, in my former book, Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And so Luke's gospel in the book of Acts is a research news story. He's given actual, well-informed facts. And then both Luke and Acts, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. The word in the Greek means lover of God. And it's possible, we don't know, but one good speculation is Theophilus was putting up the money to publish Luke's gospel. That would mean covering the cost of manual duplication, no printing press, for a long time, and so it was handwritten, and then the cost of distribution. And Luke intended his audience to be larger than Theophilus, a single guy. So if you look at how he writes his introduction, Dr. Luke talks about facts handed down by eyewitnesses, careful investigation, writing an orderly account, and then so that you would know the truth of Christ with certainty. And then he gives detail, things you would expect from a historian doing careful research, really more of a news report than a historian because the eyewitnesses were still alive. 
So I'm going to read some more out of Luke, and I want you to hear this as a news account, not a religious story. Don't go into your religious brain, churchy brain. Read this like a news story. This is not an op-ed, it's factual news. Imagine yourself as a first century reader of the news, and a copy of Luke's gospel finds its way to you. You'd be holding a document made of papyrus, which was an aquatic plant that they turned into paper like we turn wood pulp into paper. So you're sitting there holding your first century latte with this hand-copied news article we call the Gospel of Luke. You heard of Jesus, everybody had by then, and you're curious, and so you dive in. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So you would start thinking, where was I? I remember, where, where was I when that happened? And then this was the first census that took place when Cornelius was governor of Syria. You go, man, he was a terrible governor. Why did they elect him or appoint him? You're thinking about it like you're reading news stories. Everyone went to his own town to register, so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth. You think, Nazareth, that's a terrible town. And then they went to Bethlehem, the town of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. You're thinking, really, they weren't even married yet and she was pregnant? This is not good. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And thinking, wow, that's terrible. That'd be a difficult time. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Shepherds. Nobody likes shepherds. Watching, watch, watch, keeping watch over their flocks at night, an angel appeared to them. Really, the angel appeared to shepherds. So Luke seamlessly blends history and mystery. And as you read, hopefully as you read Luke's gospel news this, this month, the next two weeks before Christmas, you'll read it as if you were a first century consumer of news. And this is not just news, this is good news. And he seamlessly blends what moderns would call facts with what they would call fiction. Fact, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. We can locate that in history. They would say fiction, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God. But Dr. Luke is telling us about carefully researched facts. There is no fiction here. It's a historical fact that Caesar decreed a census should be taken. Historical the fact that angels appeared to some shepherd. I don't know, I couldn't prove it, but I'm pretty sure since Luke was a careful investigator, he probably tracked down some of these shepherds and interviewed them. I mean, it wasn't a very large country, not very big from north to south. And these shepherds would have been telling this story to everyone at every pub and every shepherd hangout you could find. I mean, people are going to talk about a KSU field goal for years to come. Imagine how long some mostly bored, mostly ignored shepherds are going to talk about seeing angels and seeing the Messiah. I mean, they're going to, if Luke goes looking for them, you're looking for those shepherds? Yeah, they're over there. They're telling that story again. These guys were around. It would have been easy for him to confirm the story, and it would have been easy for people to refute the story. But they couldn't because it was true. So Luke wrote the news, printed, published it for dissemination. It was the most important news ever written. It was good news of great joy for all people. So why have humans divided life into steel truth and mush truth, my truth and the truth? Why do we believe there's a universal truth for holding up walls, but there's no truth for holding up my life except for my truth? The two big reasons, one, humans are sinful, and then two, humans are foolish, and those are subcategories of one another. Even nice humans are sinful humans, and that's sometimes confusing to people. Even nice humans left to themselves want to be their own bosses. We don't want to submit to God, especially when we don't like what he wants for us. 
in my experience, personally and with others, and this is true for me, we want accountability until we really need it, until the truth conflicts with desire. One time, many years ago, a friend went through a terrible life experience, devastating. And to make sure that they, that never happens again, they begged me, please, if I'm ever heading in the wrong direction like that again, tell me. Several years later, as requested, I saw my friend heading in the wrong direction. I told my friend that, and they were furious with me. And so we want accountability until we really need it. And we really need it when we really want what we want, often what we should not pursue. And so humans, apart from the work of God in their hearts, they're going to go looking for confirmation for what they want to be true, their truth. And this, in essence, explains what you see around you, what you hear and read in the news. People trying to live with their own truth. But the walls are going to come down if there's nothing holding them up. To support this wall here, if you'd have seen the process, and maybe you did, they first had to cut holes in the wall, put up these massive temporary supports, all this tinker toy looking steel everywhere. Then they cut out the wall and put in the permanent steel. It took lots of careful, skillful work to correctly handle the truth about steel and brick walls. And real life requires living inside the parameters of the world as God has made it regarding both brick walls and personal choices. There's no distinction. And people look at the mess and effort of steel truth in their personal lives and they go, all that? Really? I think I'll just have my truth. It's going to be enough for me. But it isn't. And truth is truth whether you're holding up steel walls or personal choices. There's no two kinds of truth. Which brings us to the second reason for this false division between steel truth and much truth is that humans are foolish, which is a subcategory of number one. We traded wisdom, living in God's will and ways for our own way, and now we believe that we are on our own able to be wise. We think that we're smarter than God, or at very least we're sort of his junior partners. We can advise him on our lives. And we know, we know we can't hold up a brick wall by what we feel, unless you're a Jedi, maybe, but more normal people can't hold up brick walls by their desires. We want real steel up there. But then when it comes to our life, our choices, who I'm going to become, what I'm going to believe, what I'm going to treasure in my heart, what I'm, what I'm going to give my life to, we don't think we need steel there. We think that we can put whatever we want there. And this false dichotomy between this kind of world and this kind of world is devastating. Because the wall in here is not going to hold any more than the wall up there just because I want it to. And when I talk about steel truth, I don't mean God's truth is hard and cold, like the hard, cold steel. I mean steel like real, steel like able to sustain. God's truth is actually very warm. It's life. And so now through the, the valley of the shadow of death and then beyond that, we have a truth that sustains us. So let me finish by shifting our examples actually going from my example to a better one, Jesus's, and he goes, he talks about the gospel as a rock foundation. We're talking about holding up walls. He's talking about holding up your life. It's in Luke chapter 6. It's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, people have puzzled over and disputed the difference between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain as if there's some mistake or Matthew and Luke didn't get it right. But why are they puzzled about this? Jesus preached a lot. Uh, at least on one hill and at least in one plane. And the content was going to be 
the same to a degree. It's going to be different. I mean, I might say different things between first and second services to a degree. So the Lord knew his audience. He had his purposes for what he preached. And here in Luke, he's preaching in this wide open flat place. And let me read it and make our final application. Luke 6, 47, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? So he's concluding his sermon. He gives a very direct challenge. You call me Lord, then why don't you yield to me? If you say I'm the Lord, why do you believe yourself as if you're the boss of your own life? And then he gives two approaches to life that every person takes. He says, I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me and hears my word and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep, laid the foundation on a rock. The flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed. Its destruction was complete. So the one who hears, believes, and applies has a foundation that goes to bedrock and survives the flood. The one who hears but doesn't believe, doesn't apply, they got their own truth. Like, eh, sounds good, but you know, I think I'm going to go with this. There's no foundation there. And time's going to come. And it may do okay when the sun's shining, but time's going to come when it's not going to survive the storm. And if you believe, if you believe the gospel and you're seeking to do what Jesus wants, your foundation is secure. And, and it's, a, it's a staggering but a true thought that everybody in this room, unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, but everybody in this room is going to lay taking their last breath sometime. It just seems inconceivable, but we're all going to take our last breath. Everybody here is going to walk into the valley of shadow of death. And your body at that point is not going to be doing well. I mean, that's what death is. It's the ultimate disease, disease. And so, but your soul can and your soul will. Your foundation is secure. And you may not even feel like you're doing okay but you will be doing okay because it's not your truth you're going to put your confidence in. It's the truth. And so it's important now that we train, we practice putting our confidence in the steel truth of the gospel regardless of what we feel or what we think we're seeing around us. Now, if you've not believed the gospel, then I assume you're here one of two reasons. You're here because you're investigating the claims of Christ. You're still deciding or you came because your grandkids were singing this morning but one of those two reasons probably but I encourage you in your investigation that you remember this there's only one reason to believe the gospel in the end and it's not because you think it might make you feel better it's not because you think it'll make all your problems go away it won't not because your friends believe the only reason to believe the gospel is because it's true it's true news and there's mystery in it there's mystery that how God's Spirit enters a person when they profess faith and believe the gospel. God's Spirit enters them and they're born again. Jesus even talking to Nicodemus talked about how it's like the wind. It's mysterious. But there's history. It's not all mystery. There's history. In space and time, Christ the Savior has come. come. So to enter the good kingdom of God, we follow the good King Jesus. We believe Him. We do what He says. This is the bedrock for our lives. And so we're going to finish up with a few minutes of prayer. Normally we end with a couple of songs. Today I want to give you some space to just be still. And you may be uncomfortable with this. Maybe you don't do a lot of this. Um, but that's okay. You'll be all right. We're not going to do it a long time. 
But I'm going to give you a chance to pray. I'll give you a couple of thoughts. You can pray whatever you want, of course, but I'll give you a couple of thoughts. First, if you've not committed your life to Christ or you're still unsure about where you stand with Christ, I encourage you to pray about that. And if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, then you could pray even now and transfer trust from yourself to him. There's no magic words, no magic incantation. Just cry the authentic cry of your heart and God will hear your prayer. And it's mystery. It's mysterious what God does, but it's based on history. God has come in Christ. You can pray and just say, God, I, I believe. Uh, I ask you to come and forgive me of my sins and I'm putting my confidence in you. That's what repentance is. It's a two-part movement. It's turn away from sins and turn towards God. If you're already a follower of Christ and you've been following your own truth and you know it, well then confess that. Repent. Commit anew to living in the truth of the gospel. And then a third thing you can pray would be for others. Pray for people you know, work, or live around who are trying to live without a steel beam holding up brick walls and you can see the slow-mo fall Pray that God would give you courage and opportunity to share the good news of Christ with them. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to pray, and then I'll close. And if you'd like to pray with uh, family or friends, you can. You can do that now. You can pray alone. Don't ask a stranger to pray with you. You'll make them uncomfortable. But if you, you want to pray with someone you know, then by all means, please do that. I'll come back up in a minute. Amen. 20th century composer John Cage didn't believe that the world, the universe, the cosmos was a product of blind, undirected chance. There was no purpose, no meaning, no real beauty. And so he composed, and I use that word very loosely, composed a music that was just silence. Nobody played anything. He, he composed music that was dissonant. It was chaos. It was random notes. And when he first performed had an orchestra perform it, they, at the end of the performance, they were hissing, because it was terrible. And his, his, his view that the world is random, meaningless, there's no purpose, led to silence, dissonance, and ugliness. And there was a, a other, another composer, um, Rachmaninoff, who was mocked because he was still composing real music, <laughs> uh, romantic. And he was mocked because he wasn't up with the time. But if you listen, but nobody's listened to John Cage. And um, people still hear Rachmaninoff because it's beautiful. And so if you believe the truth of God, you're believing the world as it really is. And around you, people are saying more and more in louder and louder voices, there is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is no designer and you don't need to feel um, intimidated. You don't need to feel embarrassed. You don't, because there's a slow motion wall falling on them. And you have a steel beam holding up your life. So be encouraged and be joyful. Have a great Sunday.